Again, welcome everybody. We're uh, just excited and blessed to be able to be gathered here to worship with you guys today. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we're going to be looking at the second half of Revelation chapter 9, as well as taking communion together. And so if you're in the room, hopefully you've gotten your communion emblems as you came in the room today. If you're watching online, I encourage you to get your communion emblems ready. We're going to be doing that at the tail end of service today, but... This morning, we are looking at what is known as the second woe of Revelation, the sixth trumpet judgment of Revelation chapter 9. Now, by the time we've gotten to uh, Revelation chapter 9, whether you see the judgments, the trumpets, or the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as a chronological uh, set of judgments, or whether you see them as overlapping um, retelling of the same tribulation period, those are a couple of the possible interpretations. Either way, all agree that by Revelation 9, we are looking at events that are taking place during what is known as the Great Tribulation the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. And this is a period of time where God's judgment on sin, the sin of mankind, the sin of those who reject him, is still falling upon the earth, and it's falling on the earth and its inhabitants in increasingly devastating ways. By this time, the church has been taken out of the earth, and so that, that event, that rapture, as we call it, of the church was followed by these cataclysmic judgments landing in rapid succession upon the earth. This time is so bad. This time is so difficult that Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. And so the first half of Revelation 9, we looked at last time, the first woe, or the fifth trumpet judgment, which was a demonic attack aimed at people. It was a judgment of torment, a judgment of pain, a judgment of suffering, a time so bad that it tells us in Scripture that people would want to die. They would seek death. They would try to end their lives, but God would remove the ability to. They would not be able to find death. That's all then followed by the second half of Revelation 9, which is another demonic attack. Ding, ding, demons round two, right? And so, you know, um, it, it's a difficult time. But, but this time in Revelation, this time in Revelation, um, instead of people being tormented and people being um, uh, just persecuted with intense suffering, God allows this judgment, this second demonic attack, to actually kill people. Primarily here, what we're going to see this morning are four major demons, Demons, or angels of destruction as I'm calling them, leading an army of 200 million people. Now this is all part of the reclaiming of the earth by its rightful owner, Jesus Christ. As we've been studying through Revelation, we saw there in heaven as the Lamb of God who was slain, stepped forward and claimed the seven-sealed scroll which I believe is the title deed to the earth there. And as he reclaimed that scroll, reclaiming that ownership, that rightful ownership of the earth that was given over when sin came into the world, he began to open those seals, unleashing terrible judgments upon the earth and the inhabitants of his earth because it belongs to him. And as he began to open up those seals, those judgments were falling on what are essentially at this point squatters in his property. Squatters and property that belongs to him, people who are not of his family due to their willful, continued rejection of him. And then as those seals opened, each one was another phase of this judgment pouring out upon the earth until we got to the seventh seal, which then ushered in the seven trumpet judgments. And the first four trumpet judgments we saw were judgments against the earth itself, against the natural order, against the land and the sea and the sky. And and these were judgments that were against that which mankind had raised up as their own God, earth itself, to, to worship creation, to worship Mother Earth, Gaia, all the different words people use in their worship of the creation. But then the last three trumpet judgments are introduced as woes. As the angel would say, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth as the remaining trumpets are about to sound. And that word woe means destruction and despair and devastation to come. And again, just a picture of the further escalating judgments of God upon the earth. And so as we saw in that first woe is five months of uniquely 
terrible suffering caused by demons who were released from the abyss to inflict pain and suffering upon mankind. The second woe, the sixth trumpet judgment that we're looking at this morning, will begin in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 9. And what we're going to see here today, the four main descriptors of what we're looking at today and what we're going to study is an altar, some angels, an army, and a world audience. But before we get into the details of all that, we are going to spend some time in worship because as God's people, we are saved. We are saved from our sin. We are saved from the power of sin and death. We are saved from the wrath to come, and we are so grateful for that, so grateful for that opportunity to be saved, but never to forget that while we are here, there are still people who aren't, and we have a great call to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them that they too would be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful, God, for what you've done in our lives in saving us, God. Lord, we're gathered here today as your people. Most of us are gathered here as your people, Lord, to hear from you, to hear your word. God, we gather as a group like this to to hear the, the teaching and the preaching of your word, that we would study and learn it together to know what it is, what it means, how it applies, that then we would live according to the truth of your word. And Lord, as we've been studying Revelation, God, we've seen some very terrible judgments falling upon the earth. Lord, as we've been studying this prophecy of the future, of the time of tribulation, God, it's a warning. It's a picture of how you really feel about sin, God. That, Lord, you were in no way cavalier about sin. You were in no way justifying with sin. Lord, sin is destructive and you hate it. And Lord, you've spent centuries by this point allowing the truth of salvation to be preached upon the earth. But Lord, we know there's a time coming when that'll be over. And God, it breaks our heart to see that there are still those who will reject you even in the face of judgment, Lord. And we pray, God, that those we know today that don't know you yet would know you before this terrible time of judgment, Lord. That they would come to salvation before this terrible time of judgment. But Lord, we're also gathered here today, God, to celebrate in communion, Lord. And God, we know the very basis, the very foundation of our evangelistic zeal, the very foundation of why we go out to tell people about you and to share the gospel, Lord, is because we remember what you did for us. And we're so grateful, God, that you shed your blood for us, that you died on that cross for us, Lord. God, speak to us today. Bless us today. Encourage us today. Challenge us today, Lord. Motivate us today through the power of the Holy Spirit to be people of God, people of Jesus Christ, people who live for him and people who share him with everybody they run into, Lord. God, we worship you now. We praise your name because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. And let's start reading there. It says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet. And from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice. So here in Revelation 9, John is watching these judgments unfold, these trumpets being blasted. And now as he hears this sixth trumpet, he hears a voice. And it specifically tells us that this voice is coming from the four horns of the golden altar. Now this is a scene that's somewhat reminiscent of Moses in the wilderness. And if you guys remember the story, he was walking through the wilderness one day and a bush started talking to him. It was on fire. There was a voice that came out of it. And it says in Exodus chapter three, verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at the burning bush, God called out to him from the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And here I am, he answered. Now that experience must have been very strange for Moses because, you know, uh, bushes are um, alive but considered inanimate objects, right? They don't typically speak to us, wave at us, try to get our attention. Um, They're just plants, you know? And even though this bush was burning and not consumed strange enough, Moses then heard this voice. Well, 
Here in Revelation 9, much like this burning bush, this voice, I believe, coming from the four horns of the altar is the voice of God speaking through this inanimate object, this golden altar. And you'll notice that that is a very specific detail there. It's not just any altar. It says it is the golden altar. Now, if you remember back in the book of Hebrews, we were taught that the tabernacle and the temple that was here on earth was a model, a representation of the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God. And so in the tabernacle we had on earth, there was actually two altars that were a part of that whole setup there. One, you had the brass altar or the bronze or brazen altar, as it was called, that set in the outer court of the temple, and it was the place where the animal sacrifices were killed. They were slaughtered there. Their blood was shed as that offering to cover their sin, and um, that happened in the outer court. And then in the inner court, or inside the holy place, sitting just before the big veil that separated the holy of holies, which is where God's presence was, you had this thing called the golden altar, or also referred to as the altar of incense. And that altar is where the incense from outside was brought in. It was placed on that altar. The smoke went up from that altar of incense. And that whole picture there was a picture of God receiving the prayers of his people. As that smoke went up from that incense just before the throne room of God, it was this picture of the prayers of God's people rising up to him. And it was a picture that the prayers of God's people are a sweet-smelling aroma to him, that God is not you know, irritated when we talk to him, right? He, he loves it. He loves us to reach out and to pray and to talk to him that way. And so, um, but the golden altar, we have seen this altar twice so far in the book of Revelation. The first time we saw it was in chapter 6 where we saw a group of believers who had been killed for their testimony, their testimony of Jesus Christ that they had given during tribulation. We refer to these people as tribulation saints, that people who had come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior during tribulation, they had then been killed. They had been slaughtered, murdered for their testimony. And so in chapter 6, we saw them underneath this altar that was right in front of the throne of God there in heaven, and they were there crying out to God, or in a sense, offering up prayers to God from that altar. But their prayer at that time was, when, God, will you avenge our blood? When will you make those who killed us pay the price for their crimes? And then in chapter 8, at the opening of the seventh seal, when the seven trumpets were handed out to the seven angels, we read there that we saw an angel that had an incense burner, Right? That, that thing that would dangle off at a chain, this kind of bowl-like thing that the incense was inside and it would burn incense. We saw this angel that had that incense burner. It says he was given a large amount of incense that he then mixed with the prayers of the saints and offered that on the golden altar. Again, the picture of the altar of incense in heaven um, the, being what we saw in the tabernacle on earth. But in Revelation 8, instead of those prayers then going up to God, going up to the throne from that golden altar, it tells us that the angel took that censer that was filled with the incense and mixed with the prayers of the saints, filled with fire from the altar, and he hurled it down to earth. Hurled it down to earth, which was a picture of God's judgment falling down to the earth. And now here in Revelation 9, we see this golden altar mentioned again. But this time, there's an additional detail added to it. It specifically mentions the four horns of the altar. Now, it's specifically, uh, interestingly enough, from the four horns of the altar that the voice of God comes from. So what's the significance of that? What's the, what's the idea, the picture that's being painted here? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 30, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell you what takes place there. But if you're a note taker, in Exodus 30, we actually have the detailed instructions for the construction of this golden altar in the tabernacle. And in those detailed instructions, we find that a part of this altar was that there were four horns um, on the altar as a part of its construction. And then in Exodus 30, we also read that the people were instructed that once a year during Yom Kippur, they would take blood from the animal sacrifice on the outside altar and they would bring it into the golden altar and they would smear that blood on the horns of the altar. Again, this being the altar of incense, which represented the place where people, um, God, the prayers of God's people went up to him. And so in those instructions in Exodus 30, they would smear the blood of the sacrifice on the horns of this altar, and then they would take the incense from that altar, place it in the burner, and then enter into the Holy of Holies. 
So it was this whole process of access into God's presence. Now the point of that whole picture there is God was saying to his people, I will hear your prayers. I will receive your prayers, but only on the basis of the blood sacrifice. That is a principle that has never changed. God hears our prayers. He hears the prayers of his people, but only on the basis of the blood sacrifice. So when we cry out to God in prayer, when we're pleading our cause, pleading our case to God in prayer, it's only on the basis of the blood atonement, the blood sacrifice, and that atonement being the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is only on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, that sacrifice on our behalf, that the way to God is open. That was the whole picture of what was taking place in the tabernacle. That is the whole reality of God coming to this earth as, as clothing himself in flesh, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, dying on the cross. That whole picture, that whole process is, is what we see in this. That access to God Almighty who is perfect and pure and holy and without sin and without blemish, access into his presence is only possible through the blood atonement. That's what we see in the altar. And so a person might say, you might say, perhaps, I don't know, but well, I pray all the time. And, and oftentimes as you're sharing your faith with people and talking to people about Jesus Christ and talking to people about the gospel, and, and they don't know the Lord, they'll often come back with, well, I, I pray, because when people are confronted with the fact that they don't know God, they want to respond with, well, I'm spiritual. That's the natural response. And so one of the things you'll hear is, well, I pray. I'm a praying person. But if that prayer is not brought or based on what Jesus has done, if it's not based on his atonement and his relationship with you through that atonement, effectively, it's a useless prayer. It's going nowhere and bouncing off the ceiling. God hears and answers prayer based on the atonement. That, incidentally, is why we pray in Jesus' name. You'll notice that, you know, every time we pray, we end that prayer in Jesus' name or in the name of Christ, right? We pray that way not, not because it's some ritualistic formula or not because, you know, that's just the way to, to make sure the prayer's formatted, right? You know, 10-4 over and out, buddy. I mean, it's not like there's this, you have to end it that way or God doesn't hear it. The idea is, is that we're praying on the basis of. We're saying, God, hear what I'm saying on the basis of what Jesus did. We don't pray to, um, or we don't come to God on the basis of, of our own actions, what we've done. We don't come to God with the list of our accomplishments and our credentials and then demand that he hear us. That, that's not how prayer works. We come based upon what Jesus did because that is the only reason we have access to God Almighty. And so here in Revelation 9, what we see is God responding to prayer speaking from the place of the atonement, the four horns that are on the altar of incense. It's likely him speaking here in Revelation 9 in response to the prayers of all the saints that have been suffering during the time of tribulation. It's very possible that this response is directly in response to the prayer of those under the altar, right? They killed us, God, for our testimony. They murdered us because we believed in you. When will you avenge us? When will they pay for their crimes? Well, the bill has come due. That is what we're seeing here in Revelation 9, and they are about to pay. But before we move on to that, I just want to encourage you again. You know, Christian, don't ever doubt. If you are a believer, don't ever doubt that your prayers count. Don't ever wonder, if, if, is God hearing my prayers? Do they matter to him? And are they important enough in his economy? Don't ever think that, you know, because God hears your prayers. And you could be confident of that. Why? Because Jesus died so that you would have that privilege. Jesus died so that you would have that access. That through his shed blood, his atonement, and our faith in that saying, I plead that, I depend on that. I, I believe you died for me. I put my faith in you we then are able to walk into the Holy of Holies, right into the very presence of God himself. 
and say, Dad, I got issues. I need help with something. It's a beautiful picture. But interesting, in the Old Testament times, there would be occasions where someone would charge through the outer court and charge into the Holy of Holies and grab the horns of the altar. And there was this thought that, that if I hold on to these, this altar, if I hang on to these horns, God will grant me mercy and grace. Now that is true up until this time. Because here in Revelation chapter 9, that time has passed. That age of grace, the church age that we now live in prior to this time of tribulation, in Revelation 9, that time has passed. And effectively, there is no more long-suffering for those who reject Christ. Now, is salvation possible? Yes. But it's in the midst of judgment, drastic judgment being poured out. And so, verse 14 this is what the voice said. Say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Now you read here, you go, it's four angels. Aren't angels good, right? I mean, we use the terms angels and demons to refer to the good guys and the bad guys, Right? Aren't angels good? Well, we have to remember the word angel is, is, is a neutral term. The word angel simply means messenger in the original language. And so in the original language, that word messenger can refer to someone who is a good messenger, <clears throat> can refer to someone who is an evil messenger, it can refer to someone who's a supernatural messenger, it can refer to someone who's a human messenger. So the word itself simply means messenger, and these four angels are not good angels for a couple reasons. It says, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Not one single time in all of Scripture do you ever find a good angel bound in any way, shape, or form. And the reason is because they don't need to be, right? That word bound there, it's implying restraining something against its will. It's like being arrested. It's like being in prison. It's like being handcuffed is the idea. It's like um, uh, the, uh, a captured enemy soldier who has their hands and feet tied up or a criminal that is bound up so they can't do bad any longer. That is what the word bound means here. And nowhere in Scripture do we ever read of an angel that we know for sure is good being bound in this way. These angels are bound, restrained, fallen angels or we might use the word <clears throat> demons to refer to them, but they're simply another part of Satan's fallen army. Now it says that they are bound at the great river Euphrates. Very specific details here. The Euphrates River still exists today. It's a great river. Um, sometimes not so great river, but it's a famous river. It's a historical river. The Euphrates River was the original eastern border of the promised land that God gave to Israel. Now, Israel never actually took all of that land, but it was the original eastern border of the promised land. It was also the easternmost border of the Roman Empire, interestingly enough, because prophetically, during the time of tribulation, according to Daniel, we see that the world power, the one world power that comes upon the globe at that time is referred to as the revived Roman Empire. This river's region of the world is also, um, has also been a source of all kinds of strange wickedness and weird spirituality all the way back from the very beginning. Because somewhere in this area, in, in a delta region that is formed by both the Euphrates and the Tigris River, we read in Genesis is where the Garden of Eden existed. It was in this area of the world. Now, back in the garden, we read that it was there in the garden where evil infiltrated. Satan himself infiltrated this garden and then lied and tricked um, Eve, who then gave to Adam, who ate and sin entered the world. It was this garden area where the first sin in the world was committed, where the first lie was told, where the first murder was committed, where the first grave was dug. It's a significant problem area for all of mankind. This was the area where Nimrod 
We read in Genesis, defied God. He was an early world ruler. Some look at him as a pre-type of the Antichrist. Someone who rebelled against God and formed a huge worldwide movement. Some look at it and say it was a worldwide religion against God and formed everybody together to say, we'll get to God and we'll be the gods. And it was called the Tower of Babel. The Euphrates region was historically the location of some of Israel's most oppressive enemies. From this region of the great Euphrates River, we had the Ninevites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians. By the Euphrates River, where Babylon was, it was in that area where Israel was held captive for 70 years. From this area, all kinds of idolatry and weird spirituality and pantheism and polytheism and naturalistic religions came out of, most of it coming out of Babylon, which is in this area. Babylon, incidentally, plays an important role in Revelation. When we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we see Babylon referred to as Babylon the Great. Home for demons. It says, the haunt of every unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean, despicable beast. We know that this area in Babylon itself is a place of sexual immorality and sensuality and excess. It ends up becoming the center during this time of the world's economy and the center of the world's false religious system. So this great Euphrates River area (laughs) is essentially where world history began. And it's where world history will have its ultimate end. It's why Bible students and scholars and theologians get all excited when stuff happens in this part of the world. (laughs) Because it's so connected to um, end times teaching and prophecy. People get all excited. I don't know if you remember, some of you weren't even alive yet, but back when Saddam Hussein was on the scene, and he was rebuilding Babylon. Everybody got really excited about that. Whoa, what does that mean for end times teaching? But it's this region where these four great angelic leaders of evil are chained, bound, and restrained. And then it says that they were prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Now again, when you're studying the Bible, it's, it's good to ask questions about why things are said the way they're said, right? He could have just said they were prepared for this moment. But God decided to be very specific this hour, day, month, and year. And the idea there is it just gives us a picture of how precise, how in control, how perfectly on time God is with everything, including judgment. That he is perfectly on time. God is never late. God is never early. He never procrastinates. He never jumps the gun. No, he is not Gandalf. Okay? But he's God Almighty. Creator of space and time. And and everything, everything from the beginning to the end is exactly how and when God determines it to be. Including the tribulation period. Now, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's a truth you can take heart in. I could trust God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, be warned. Because 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. That is the age of grace we live in today. When we look across the world and we see things like like sex trafficking going on, and we go, God, how can you allow this to happen? And murders, and, 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 and sometimes we see things, even myself, and we're just like, God, I trust you, but I don't understand. And we're in this age where, where, where we think God is delaying, but he's long-suffering, the Bible tells us, because he wants everybody to have the opportunity to come to salvation, because he loves them that much. He created them. 
Even us, in our own worst, worst sin before we came to Christ, God was like, I created you, I love you, and I want to save you. But what does it say in verse 10? But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief there in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and all the works on it will be disclosed. God is long-suffering today, but the day will come when he's done. But the big picture of this is God is in control. God is in control now. God is in control then. God is in control during tribulation. God is the one that is in control always. And we see this picture here that, that he is in control even including of, of these apparently powerful angels who we're gonna see are responsible for the death of one-third of the human population, they're restrained by God until the hour, the day, the month, the year, precisely according to God's calendar when he says, let them loose. And here, that's indeed what he does. Let them loose. And yes, they go on to kill one-third of the human race. If you look at the seals and the trumpets, the, the judgments, if you look at them as chronological, which that's how I lean, um, you might remember back in Revelation 6 that it says when the pale, ho pale horse of death was released on the earth, that was one of the seal judgments. It says there that one-fourth of the earth was killed with sword and famine and plague and wild animals. And, and of course, there's, there's reason that you could look at these things and say not only are they chronological, but they're also summary of a long period of time. I, you know, don't want to get into that right now. But the idea is in Revelation 6, we saw that one-fourth of the human population was killed. Now here in Revelation 9, it says one-third. One-third of the population is now killed in this particular judgment. Well, if you put one-fourth and one-third together, for some of you that are like, I don't do math. I know, me too. That's 50% of the entire population of the earth that had been killed by this point of tribulation. 50%. That's 4 billion people based on today's worldwide population. It's horrific. It's horrific. But these four angels that are released to, to do this, they don't do this on their own. They have an entourage that comes with them. Look in verse 16. It says, the number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and the riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from the, their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues. And it's these three plagues that are mentioned in verse 17, and then they're mentioned again by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. So these four fallen angels, restrained, having been restrained and bound and chained, are released, are released upon the earth, and they bring this army with them. Now, when you look at this, you go, well, who or what are these horsemen, right? What are they? Um... I don't know for sure, all right? Uh, but, but there's a weird description here that, that, that could kind of point in a couple different directions. Um, there's a few ideas of who this army is. Um, one is people look at this and they go, well, it's, it's a human army. It's an army of humans led by these four fallen angels. Um, but that's, that's a big army, right? Some people go, that's a huge army um, because you know, as of 2021, all branches of the US military if you take all the branches of the U.S. military and you count them up, it's only 1.3 million soldiers. So 200 million, that's a big army, right? Um, some look at this and they go, well, because the number is so outrageously big, um, and, and then, of course, you have this really strange description of this army, um, people look at it and go, it's supernatural, it's demonic. It's just like what we saw in the fifth trumpet where there was these demonic entities that, that came upon the earth. Um, the challenge is there is because it just calls them mounted troops. It says the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. Now that word troops there simply means soldier. 
it, it, it's a, again, it's a, a word that doesn't refer to something supernatural or not supernatural. It just means soldier, uh, a fighter that is sitting on or in something. And so again, some see this as John maybe in his vision looking into the future and seeing tanks and planes and Apache attack helicopters, and he's going, uh, how do I describe this in language of his day? But if you look at it, he goes on to describe them. He says, I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. He doesn't say, I saw something like a horse, which we saw in the description of the locusts, right? Like this and like that. It was John saying, I see something I don't understand. I'm trying to bring something from my world to, to describe it. But here he just says, I saw the horses. The indication there is that he saw something that was a horse, that was some type of steed. And then he goes, but this is how I saw them. And he goes on to describe them in this very strange way where then he starts to use the similitudes. He goes, they had heads like the heads of lions. So the idea there is something that had like the body of a horse, but then it had a lion's head on it. And that could be, he, maybe it had a large mane, it had sharp teeth like a lion. But then he goes, it breathed fire, smoke, smoke and sulfur. And that word sulfur there is the word uh, brimstone in some of the more traditional translations. But again, he doesn't say they breathe something like fire, smoke, and sulfur. He says, no, this horse with the head of a lion, like a lion, breathed fire, smoke, and sulfur. And so, again, you know, you might think, and if you're a, a, a fan of fantasy literature and stuff, you know, you've heard of fire-breathing dragons and that kind of thing, right? You know, it's this picture that, that there's this, 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 this just devastating breath coming out of this creature. And then it's interesting because brimstone or sulfur, as the word is uh, rendered here, is often associated biblically specifically with judgment on the wicked. So, it says it has a tail that resembled a snake. That word resembled there means the tail had similar characteristics too. So it wasn't actually a snake. because He's not indicating that. But he says it resembled a snake and it had a head that inflicted injury. And so again there, that's one of those similitudes. You know, is it a, the tail was long? Was it articulate? Was it scaled? Did it have fangs or some type? We don't know exactly, but we do know it caused injury. And then, of course, earlier he said, I saw the horses and their riders in the vision, and then he goes on to say they had breastplates. It could be just the rider or the horse or both. But interestingly enough, these breastplates, this armor that they wore, kind of the colors corresponded to the breath that came out of the, the, the mouth of this thing, right? The breath was fire, and it said the breastplate had red on it. The second part of the breath was smoke, and it says there was blue. And then the third part of the breath was sulfur, and there was yellow on the breastplate. So again, I don't know if there's any particular um, um, uh, specific uh, connotation of that, but it's just a part of this weird description here. But the 200 million in identifying this army that's going to come during this time period of tribulation. Um, one of the reasons people used to say the Bible can't possibly be true is because they would read something like that and go, nobody has an army of 200 million. That couldn't possibly happen, right? I mean, when John wrote this letter, there wasn't 200 million people on the entire planet. And so some people would go, that's impossible. And then I'd go, um, he's having a vision in heaven of the future, so I don't think it matters if there was 200 million people on earth during that time or not, but the idea was that it's a very specific number. Now, for people who look at this and they go, I think it's a, a human army, um, again, there was times where people said no, no country on earth has an army that big. In World War II, the entire Allied army numbered 12 million at the height of their conflict. That was every Allied army together. But in the 70s, it was widely known that China, who actually bragged about this, could field an army of 200 million people. Um, today, China has a population of 1.4 billion. So 200 million in an army is not um, outrageous. And then some, like look in Revelation 16, we see that this great Euphrates River dries up and it says the kings of the east march across it with an army and some go, aha, that's the Chinese army, right? Um, I don't know, but it's possible. But regardless, whether this army is human or whether this army is demonic, it's an army led by fallen angels, led by powerful fallen angels, and the result 
of this judgment being released is a massive, sudden, and major decline of the world's population. And you can just imagine what that, what the effect of that will have on the economy and just all kinds of stuff. But the real point of this section is not, ooh, look at these weird horses. They breathe fire. Is it a manticore? I mean, it, that's not the point of this section, right? The point of this section comes from verse 20. How did the people of the planet respond to billions of deaths suddenly? How do they respond to these weird, fantastic creatures appearing on the earth, killing people indiscriminately? What, what is the response of the people of the earth to this? Not the first time people have been killed during this period of judgment. And back in the first seal judgments, it said that the people were trying to hide themselves in the rocks and mountains. Why? Because they knew the judgments were from God Almighty. Well, look at verse 20. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, you might think with all that has happened, mankind would fall on its knees and say, please, God, spare us. We'll do anything. Please spare us. We can't take it anymore. But no, they will not believe. It says they would not repent. Their hearts are so hardened in resisting God that they simply will not admit, God, you're right, we're wrong. Forgive us of our sin. They won't do it. And this, incidentally, for me, is, is one of the big warnings for people. If you're out there and you're the type of person that hears this and you go, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in God or not, and someone comes along and says, look, judgment's going to come, and you go, well, you know, if this stuff is real and, and the church gets raptured and all of these judgments, if that's real, I'll just wait until that happens and then I'll believe. Will you? Will you? Because God Almighty looking into the future is saying, look, even despite the judgments, people are still not repenting. There's five things here listed that the people refuse to turn from. Last week I mentioned that some of these things are, are very contemporary. They're happening today. We see, we, see, uh, um, we see it happening today, but it's growing and it's going to continue to grow. What we're reading here in Revelation 9 is, is the ultimate escalation, the ultimate advanced picture of stuff we see happening in our world today. And then it's also a picture of those who refuse to repent of these sins. And so as we go through them, yeah, there's people today who are engaging in these sins. There's people today who are um, refusing to repent of these particular sins. But again, it's gonna escalate and be much worse by the time we get to the tribulation period. So the first thing it says that they would not repent of worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. I mean, that's just humanity's problem from the very beginning. We are driven to worship something. Something. Here it's demons, specifically, which we see that today, right? There are people today that are proudly, I'm a part of the church of Satan. I'm like, you're so ignorant. You have no idea what you're doing. There are people that gladly and openly are like, oh no, I worship demons, and it's actually on the rise in our world today. That it's becoming a more popular thing to actively, openly say, no, I worship the devil and I worship demons. But humanity, driven to worship something, you know, people are always looking for some type of spiritual experience that transcends ourselves, and, and they, they seek it in all kinds of stuff. And so people here, we see that they're lifting up idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Right? Because a lot of times when we go through talking about what the Bible teaches about idol worship, people are like, we don't worship idols anymore. Nobody's creating big statues of Baal and Ashtoreth and, you know, that's dumb. But yeah, we create idols of money and success and fame and accomplishment. We create idols of all kinds of stuff. And, and when it means worship, it means we, we, we point our whole life at it. It dictates our decisions and how we live and what we do. And, and, and yeah, there's idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood all over our lives. It's our money, our success, our possessions. But it's interesting, he says, which cannot see, hear, or walk. Because those things don't do anything for you. We worship them, we pour our whole life into them, and they do nothing for us because they're dead, inanimate, worthless. 
And what's behind all of this worship is demons. Demons are the, the, the entity that deceive us and drive us to worship anything but God. Even ourselves, to worship ourselves. But still, as I said, some are still openly worshiping demons today. Proud of that. And um, it's just going to get worse. Then he goes on to say they didn't repent of their murders. At some point in tribulation, the killing of Christians is going to become a national pastime for most countries on the earth. It's going to be an exciting thing, not just Christians, but Jews specifically during the last three and a half years after the abomination of desolation happens, the Antichrist steps into the temple, stops their sacrifices, says, worship me, I'm God. Jews are going to be under intense persecution. But the general idea of killing another person for, um, for any reason, that, that's been in man's heart since the very beginning. Right? We go back to the very first family. What was behind the very first murder? where Cain killed Abel because God didn't accept Cain's worship, but he did accept Abel's. What was behind the murder? The issue is that Cain was trying to worship God on Cain's own terms. Abel worshiped God on God's terms. And so God said, Cain, I don't accept your worship. You worship me on my terms, not your own. And instead of Cain going, oh, God, I'm so sorry, you're right. You know, Abel did it right. What did he do? He killed Abel, murdered him. What do we see today? Don't you tell me how I have to worship God. Don't you tell me how I have to worship Jesus. I'm making up my own, and I'm going to bring my worship to that God in any way I choose. And you Christians are so just so uptight and, and so oppressive, and, and it's just going to get worse. And the result of that is murders. We see it in the world today as Christians are murdered for their faith. But it's just going to be rampant during the time of tribulation. And instead of repenting, they're going to keep doing it. You know, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. You go back to Genesis, you read in the days of Noah, it tells us violence covered the earth. Violence prevailed proliferates today and is going to be much worse, worse during tribulation. He goes on to say they didn't repent of their sorceries. That word sorceries in the Greek is pharmakia. It's translated as witchcraft. That's why we see it translated as sorceries, but we get our modern day word pharmacy from that, right? So you might read it that they, they wouldn't repent of their druggings. They were, wouldn't repent of their drug abuse. They wouldn't repent of their dependence and worship of drugs and not chasing the high. And so the whole idea of this word is, is, is including illicit use of drugs and substances. And, and we don't see that today, do we? You go to San Francisco and the fentanyl epidemic is destroying the city. It's destroying the city, not just there, but all over the place. Now, in ancient times and in modern times, in many cases, drug use is associated with the occult. And that's why it's translated sorceries a lot in the Bible. The, the whole idea of using drugs is to blur the lines between fantasy and reality, to get into an altered state of mind, to have an out-of-body experience. One doctor said stupefying and hallucinatory drugs have been associated with sorcery and witchcraft for ages, yielding to their users strange visions and hallucinations, which they then could interpret as oracles for the guidance of their clients. Also, they divested their users of control of their own minds, speaking of the drugs, making them easily available for possession and control by evil spirits. It's happening today. It's just going to get worse. Sexual immorality. That is the Greek word pornea. We get our modern English word pornography from that. Um, it's also rendered fornication, but it's referring to any morally objectionable illicit sexual activity. It's an umbrella term for, for, for any type of expression of sexual relation that is outside what God has ordained. And it says they would not repent of that. People refused to turn from it. And, and just, I mean, we could see it in the world today. You could see it in the world today and how bad things have gotten with pornography and the epidemic that that is, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, sex trafficking, as we've mentioned, all of that is a deviation or a result of deviation from what God has ordained as right and proper. And yet it's running rampant. We just exited June, which is now worldwide Pride Month, right? And Pride Month kind of started with people going, look, let me celebrate my own private personal sexual expression. 
And a part of me would go, God gave you the free will to do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. It doesn't mean he condones it, but express. But it went from, no, 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 just, just this is my personal celebration of my own personal choice to becoming something completely different. I don't know if you guys read about it, but there was a drag march in New York uh, about a week and a half ago. And they're on video chanting. This was the chant of the parade. We're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. That was the chant on video of this parade. It's not about personal, private expression of of individual um, sexual identity. There's an agenda, and the agenda isn't even being kept secret anymore. That's happening today. Imagine what it's going to be during the tribulation period. And then thefts is the last thing. And thefts is simply the idea of just taking what doesn't belong to you. We've seen this exploding in recent years, right? Everybody, people jumping on any excuse to loot and steal. It's a protest, so that means I get to steal everything from the store. What? It's a protest, so we get to burn down our thing and bust up all these windows and steal from all these businesses. And what has been the response of our world today? Well, let's decriminalize theft. Poor thieves. I mean, we don't want to throw them in jail, right? And so the result has been stores just just getting robbed constantly. Security, employees, and owners, they can't do anything about it. And the people that are breaking into these stores, just in broad daylight, walking through the doors. Why? Well, you know, if it's under a certain amount, you can't do anything. And the people who do this have no conscience, no sense, or care of right and wrong. And what we see here in Revelation 9 is a fully developed picture of what we're already observing today in our world. Crime without penalty. No justice, no retribution. It's possible that during this time and tribulation that the justice system has been so broken down, become so completely impotent that, that it just has no effect. And again, we're seeing a great example of that today in San Francisco. One commentator said capital punishment will be fully eliminated in the great tribulation period except for one crime, being a Christian. So what is the message of Revelation 9 for Christians today? <laughs> um, I think it's a missionary call for the church. It's a missionary call for the church. We're getting a, a peek at what's to come in the future. As God is pouring out judgment on the earth and mankind is getting more and more resistant, more and more entrenched in their sin. Vance Havner said, the real test of how much we believe prophetic truth is what we're doing to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. And that's a big one, right? You know, we're called to evangelize scripturally as Christians, every Christian. We're called to, to, to warn people, to snatch them from the fire, it says, to plead with them, to persuade them. And, 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 and some will go, well, I'm, I'm not an extrovert. So, so I, don't, I don't have to share my faith. And well, it, it's fine that you're not an extrovert. But you don't have to be an extrovert to witness your faith in the world today. You don't have to be an extrovert to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yeah, there's different ways to do that, right? Some people within the church go door to door. Some people are really comfortable and excited to spark up conversations with strangers. Some are, are pass out gospel tracts, which we make available to the church here. Some do open-air preaching. Not all are called to do the same thing. But all of us can care for people, can love people, can serve people, can actively engage in their lives as Christians who know the truth, who live the truth, and who share the truth. Yeah, not every believer is called to be an evangelist, but the Bible does say that every believer is called to do the work of one. And that work is to keep shining the light, to keep being like Christ, to be actively, intentionally Christ-like in your life, in your living, in your behaviors, to, to stop compromising, to start taking stands for righteousness and truth. And while you're doing all that and living that way, along the way, you get to tell others about the truth that there's a God who loves them, a God who desires to forgive them, a God who will one day pour out his wrath on sin. But now we live in a time where he is waiting. He is patiently waiting. 
where he died on the cross for them to save them from that wrath to come. And, you know, it's not all that difficult for us to look around and see that evil is getting worse. But if we believe what we're reading in Revelation about what's to come, and I believe we do, it's God's word, then I think the challenge is we can't continue to let our Christianity be a private, hidden, personal thing any longer. But rather, we need to be the lights on the hill shining the light of salvation into the darkness. Now, in a few days, we're celebrating Independence Day, July 4th. I know this wasn't really a July 4th message, per se. <laughs> Um, but we're going to be celebrating Independence Day here in America. And yeah, we're, we're so grateful in America that we still have freedoms. Even though there's things that look like freedoms being eroded, we still have freedoms today. We still have the, 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 the stuff our country's about here in America specifically. But independence can be both a good and bad thing. Spiritually, God has granted us a free will, and that free will allows us to choose sin or to choose salvation. One leads to wrath and eternal judgment. The other leads to eternal life. So don't get caught up in using the independence, the the freedom, the free will that God has created you with for sin, for sinful living. Because each day you do that, it just hardens your heart a little bit more against God. It hardens your heart a little bit more against Him. And the end of all of it will be judgment. Judgment the end of all of it will be judgment. Instead, use that free will that God has given you to choose freedom, to choose salvation, to be set free from the power of sin and death, to be set free from the control of sin, to be, to be alive with a freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ, a freedom that is only found in him because it was bought and it was paid for by him. Amen? Well, our passion to proclaim the gospel as Christians, I think comes from a deep understanding and remembrance of the salvation that we have been given. That, that is part of the motivation. We believe in what Christ has done. We believe in what it means for us today, what it means for us tomorrow. We believe in his word. We believe in what his word tells us, past, present, and future, right? And, and in communion, it's where we as the body of Christ take time to remember the salvation that he has granted to us. That free, unearned, undeserved gift, that, that being pardoned and set free from the penalty of sin. That's, that's what we're remembering in communion, that we have been saved from the wrath is to come. And in all of that, we remember. We're encouraged that our passion, our desire, our motivation to share the gospel should continue to burn bright. And so that's what we're doing in communion. So we're going to close today in communion. All of you should have gotten one of these communion cups um, as you came in, if you're online, you should get your communion emblems ready. Real quick, there's a very thin plastic tab and a thicker plastic tab on this cup. If you would very carefully pull back the thin plastic tab, it will reveal the, the wafer on the top here. You know, when Jesus took the bread in the Gospels, it says that he, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then he said to all his disciples that were there, this is my body. This bread, it's my body, which is for you. And he gave them each a piece, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And the idea of the bread in communion for the body of Christ, and the reason Jesus handed it to them and said, do this in remembrance of me, partake of this, is because he wanted us to remember what the bread represented. The bread represents his perfect, sinless body that was given for us. You see, all the wrath that was poured out on Jesus, all that came upon him and the scourging and the suffering and the, and the being nailed to the ground, all of it, that was, that was for us. Because we're the ones that have sinned. We're the ones that broke God's law. And so what we're reading about in tribulation is God pouring, it out on the, pouring all that judgment out on the world, but there was a time 2,000 years ago where God poured it out on his own son. That through faith in him, we would be able to be forgiven, pardoned from breaking God's law. It's all a judgment that we deserve. It's a judgment that he's going to pour out on the world in the future, but because he loved you and me so much, he stepped into our place. He took our punishment, paid our price, the penalty for all of our sin. 
penalty for all the murders and the idol worship and the sexual immorality and the thefts and so on. He paid it all so that we can obtain salvation now. So that we could be forgiven now and saved from the wrath to come on sin. And we get the benefit of what he did all through our confession of faith in him. And that confession leads to our adoption into his family. That when he comes back to claim the earth, we're not going to be here because he took us out of it so he could wash it clean. What a truth. What a glorious truth. What a truth the world needs to hear. And so as we are gathered to remember that, be encouraged. God saved you. He wants to save your friend, your family member, your coworker, your boss. He wants to save them too. And you may be the only person that's going to tell them about how much he loves them, about the fact that they, 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 they broke his law. And any criminal deserves the punishment, but God took it for them. What a glorious truth we get to live in and one we get to share as well. Father God, we are so grateful for what you did for us in taking the penalty of our sin onto yourself. Your body, Lord, was given. You were the atonement. God, as, as you were placed on that altar on the outside, God, and your, and your body was, was destroyed, all of that was a picture of the price of our sin, the cost and it wasn't a pretty picture, Lord. But you loved us so much. Your word says that for the joy set before you, you stepped into all of that, Lord, for us. And we remember, God. We remember how much you loved us. We remember the price of our sin, and we say thank you, God. Thank you so much. Let's partake together. Now, if you're in the room and you have one of the cups, just very carefully now pull back the thicker plastic tab here so it doesn't spill. You know, in that same story in the Gospels when Jesus, it says, took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood and do this in remembrance of me. You see, there was this process that they had been doing where they would go to that brazen altar sacrifice the animal, the blood would be shed. The priest would then take that blood into the inside, into the altar of incense and spread it on the horns once a year. And then that allowed him to go into the very presence of God where he sprinkled blood onto the mercy seat and God would say, okay, people, your sin is overlooked for another year. And that had to happen year after year after year on top of all the other sacrifices they had to do for all of their many sins. But Jesus said, look, I want you to remember that this is a new covenant and it's in my blood shed for you once for all that I'm going to shed my blood on the cross and your faith in that is going to give you a clean slate, an unblemished record, restored fellowship permanently and forever. And a part of what we remember in that is we don't deserve that. But he gave it to us because he loves us. Oh, what great love is this that we would be called children of God. To remember that we were stained by sin and there was nothing we could do to wash it away, but he atoned. He atoned on the cross. And his atonement didn't just grant us access to him that God would hear our prayers. It granted us full access that the stain of our sin was forever washed clean, that we would forever be able to be in God's presence. Hallelujah. There is salvation in no other, now and in the future. Doesn't matter what idol one raises up, doesn't matter what it's made of, there is no God besides Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and died for us. God's desire, as we read earlier, was that all would be saved, and so he is patiently waiting. That's why he shed his blood that everybody would have the opportunity to come to know him and to be forgiven, to be renewed and restored and redeemed. And how do we express our gratitude to our Lord and Savior for what he has done for us? 
We do it by loving him first and foremost. We do it by living for him first and foremost. And we do it by telling everybody we can about who he is, how much he loves them and what he wants to do for them, to forgive them, to save them as well. God, we thank you so much for dying for us. We thank you, God, that that we're currently in this age, Lord, of your long-suffering. We thank you, God, that, that your blood was shed to wash us clean, God. And we thank you, Lord, that through our faith in that, Lord, you see us spotless, blameless. Lord, not that we would be puffed up and prideful and look how perfect we are, but no, simply that we would be able to approach you in confidence, boldly coming to the throne of grace to sit with you, to talk with you, to worship you, to learn from you. God, how glorious that privilege is. And Lord, we all know people who don't yet have that access, Lord, who still stand in the path of your judgment, Lord, and we ask that you would forgive them as you have forgiven us, that you would use us to share with them the salvation that you've granted to us, Lord, because we remember how powerful it is We remember, Lord, how precious it is, and we say thank you. Let's partake together. I pray that God would bless each and every one of you as you go forth. You know, we got another night of harvest, you know, but I think every night of the year is Harvest Crusade (laughs) for a Christian. We all get the opportunity to not just live our faith, but to share our faith. And that's why we're here learning more about our faith as we study the Word of God together. I pray God would continue to use you and to bless you and to equip you and to empower you, to fill you with His Holy Spirit, that you would have everything you need to be the person He's calling you to be and do the things He's calling you to do. And when that includes stepping out in faith to tell someone how much God loves them, that you would do that with love and boldness and gentleness and firmness because our world is getting darker. Our world is hurtling headlong into judgment. The time is short. And so we're people called to redeem that time, amen? All right, God bless you guys.